Luke 10. In our part two, uh, picking up where we left off this morning, in technically verse uh, 12 is where we'll be this evening. So we spent our time this morning being led to focus on the commissioned, those who were sent to go. That Jesus said, the harvest is great, but the laborers are few. He commanded those who were already going to pray that the Lord would send more. And we talked about prayer and we talked about what it means to pray and what happens when we pray. And so if we're genuinely praying, as we did just a few moments ago, for the Lord to do a work, let us not be surprised if the Lord uses us to do the work. Let us not be surprised if the Lord takes the the desires of His heart and conforms our heart to them. So He gives us the desires of our heart. And the next thing you know, we are the ones that are aching to do the will of the Lord that we've been praying that the Lord would do, knowing that it is what He has called us to pray for. And we talked about various elements, and we talked about the, the, the cost, that he sends us forth as lambs uh, in the midst of wolves, that there are people who will hate us, who will reject our message, that even though the harvest is great, and even though there are many um, who will receive, there are also many who will reject, and those that will dislike us for our message. And we consider all of these things, uh, understanding it was not, and I pray that, that you did not, Interpret in that message any sort of guilt. Uh, I, I didn't want you to. The last thing we need in anything in our Christian lives is to be motivated by guilt. Guilt is not our motivation. Grace is our motivation. And grace is a far better motivation than guilt. And that's why we talked about what did Jesus Christ save us to do. Because here's the thing. If we have been gloriously saved, as we partook in the Lord's table this evening, and we communed around that table, I don't know what goes through your mind when we partake in the Lord's Supper. But when you think of Jesus Christ's body being broken for you, and when you think of his blood being shed on the cross for you, this is the New Testament in my blood which is shed for you, it ought to bring, it wells up in me this sense of gratefulness, this sense of obligation that says the Lord has done so much for me, can I not do something for him? And when we find ourselves in that place where we say God has been so good, then we start to say, okay, well, why did he do what he did? Why would God do that? Yes, he loves me. Yes, he wants me to go to heaven. Yes, he wants to be with me for eternity. But yes, he wants to use me to reach others as well. To pass it along. And when we realize that God wants us to pass it along, then there will grow in us this desire to do so. And that's what I desired to get across this morning. I I didn't want you to feel guilty. I I never want to be one of those pastors who stands over you with a club and says, you need to do more. And I shouldn't have to. And that's the long and the short of it, right? Because you have the Holy Spirit. And if you have the Holy Spirit, then the Holy Spirit's telling you what you should do. And if we're a body of believers... And we are many members making up one body. And I'm a part of that body. And you're a part of that body. Then there's a part for you to play. And the Holy Spirit's not trying to hide that part from you. Right? 
And so you need to find out what your part is, and then you need to be a part of that. And so you're a part of the body, and then you're doing your thing as reasonable disciples. And as the Bible says, that that pastors and teachers are here to train up the people to do the work of the ministry. So I train you, and then we all go out and we do the work of the ministry together. And there's no, there doesn't need to be any guilt there, or even any pressure there. It's, it's a matter of serving and loving the Lord. It's a matter of following me as I follow Christ. It's a matter of us banding together to do what's reasonable. And so this morning, we actually looked at three points. I've only got two of them up here on the screen. First, the fields are white, the laborers are few. Will you pray knowing the master of the harvest? And then second, the fields are white, the laborers are few. Will you go knowing the cost of the labor? I did give you a third point this morning. The fields aren't white everywhere, but there's still much work to be done. And that final point emphasize that even if you can't fully harvest, there's weeds to be pulled of false doctrine, there's rocks to be removed, and there's tilling to be done. And that's what we talked about in part one, as we focused upon the commissioning of the 70 to go and harvest the souls of the men who are ready to receive, and women, and children. And these two, these, these several application points that we gave, um, Directed toward those who were commissioned. And I would lock us in among those commissioned. And we talked about that in Matthew 28. Jesus saying, go into all the world. In Romans 10, how can they hear without a preacher, a proclaimer? And indeed, we're a part of that. That we are that nation that should show forth the praises of him who hath called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. First Peter 2. In our time this evening, Jesus is going to turn his focus from the commissioned to the mission field unto which they are commissioned. And it's really important that we understand this, because in our study this morning, we learned of our privilege, what I would be comfortable calling our obligation, which is to serve Christ, to pray the Lord the harvest, to send forth laborers, our opportunity to be among those laborers, reflecting the light of Christ into a world which has a desperate need. But with these feelings of obligation, obedience, necessity, might come some other feelings which are natural to the human condition, but which really have no business in our efforts, our evangelistic efforts. As I mentioned, feelings of guilt for not doing more than what God has called us to do. If you're doing what God has called you to do, and if you can honestly, genuinely, with all faith, say, this is what God has asked of me, and I've responded to the call of the Spirit as He's led me to tell others, as He's led me to do the work, then you need not feel guilty that you don't do more. But then there's other feelings as well. Feelings of inability and failure when people reject our message. And this is a problem as well, because when we feel as though we have failed because someone has rejected our message, then somehow we're imposing upon that message us, as if somehow we have actually failed because someone has rejected the gospel. And what we're going to learn about this evening is that the gospel has nothing to do with you. It really doesn't. It has everything to do with Christ. And so when people reject the gospel... They're not actually rejecting you. I mean, unless you're imposing something on the gospel and you're doing it in your own power, then they might be rejecting you. But if you're going and preaching a true gospel and they're rejecting it, who are they rejecting? They're rejecting Christ. 
And so this evening reminds us that there is another factor to the work of evangelism, which is, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians, in relation to the ministry of himself and Apollos, he says in verses 6 and 7 of 1 Corinthians 3, I have planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. So then neither is he that planteth anything, neither is he that watereth, but God that giveth the increase. You see what Paul is saying here? There's a controversy in the Corinthian church because people were saying, well, I'm of Paul. And others were saying, well, I'm of Apollos. And others were saying, well, I'm of Cephas. I'm a follower of Paul. I'm a follower of Apollos. Well, that's okay. I'm a follower of Peter's gospel. I'm a follower of Paul's gospel. And Paul says, look, who's Paul? Who's Apollos? Who's Cephas? We're little more than ministers. I planted. I'm the one that came first. I'm the one that began the seeding of the gospel. Apollos watered. He stayed there when I left and he got going on the work. But who's the one that gave the increase? It wasn't Paul. Paul didn't, Paul didn't save anyone. Apollos didn't save anyone. But God who gives the increase. And we need to remember that. That it's God that gives the increase. That it's God that's actually behind the scenes doing the work when we share the gospel. And we know this. We don't always remember it, but we know it. Right? You've heard the stories of how people have been saved. You've heard about people overhearing things or picking up a tract on the side of the road. Some people have picked up uh, tracts from garbage cans and read them and been saved. There are so many ways that people have come to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And it hasn't needed a eloquent orator, the best of the best. God just uses normal people who are willing to be used. And so with this in mind, we'll continue in verse 12 of Luke 10. Recall, Jesus has just said that when you go into a city, if they reject you, even the dust of that city, wipe off your feet as a testimony against them and then tell them that the kingdom of God has come nigh unto you. It came and you rejected it. And then he says this in verse 12. But I say unto you that it shall be more tolerable in that day for Sodom than for that city. The cities that reject you, the cities that will not even give you a place to stay, the cities where there's not one person who will give you a base of operation through which you can tell others, the cities that say you need to leave and so you have to dust off your feet and you have to leave, it will be more tolerable in that day for Sodom than for that city. Now what is that day that's being spoken of here? We will actually find out as we continue in the context. I'm not going to go to other verses on this because within the context, it will be answered. And that day that's being spoken of is the day of judgment. The day that we talked about in Sunday school this morning, when all will stand before the judgment seat of Christ, the great white throne of judgment after the millennial reign, when God will pull everybody out of that waiting place that we call hell, and he will judge the quick and the dead out of the book of life, and they will be found guilty And they will be cast in the lake of fire. On that day, that's the day, the day of judgment. Those who reject the gospel, those who rejected the gospel at the at the commission of those seventy, Jesus says, will be more accountable 
than those who rejected the gospel in the days of Abraham. Now consider the magnitude of what Jesus is saying here. Consider the magnitude of this comparison between these cities who might reject the 70 and that city called Sodom. Sodom is one of the scriptural prototypes of judgment. A city so depraved and lost in the darkness of their own sinful hearts that God felt it necessary to call down fire and brimstone from heaven that he might destroy them in the fires of judgment. We're introduced to Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis 13 when Lot, having the choice of where to go when he and Abram needed to separate because their flocks were too many for that land to bear them both. So they separated and Abram said, you can choose any way you want. You go one way and I will go the opposite way. And he gave Lot the choice. And the Bible says that Lot pitched his tent toward Sodom. Sodom was in the plains. It was a very fruitful area. And he pitched his tent toward Sodom. Now we're introduced to the problems of Sodom in Genesis 18 and 19. We read this in Genesis 18 beginning in verse 20. And the Lord said, Because the cry of Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and because their sin is very grievous, I will go down now and see whether they have done altogether according to the cry of it, which has come unto me, and if not, I will know. So many of you know this account. Uh, um, there were three angels that uh, communed with Abram. Abraham at this point. They communed with him. And as they're leaving, they tell him what they're about to do there. And Abram speaks up and he says, Will the Lord destroy the righteous with the wicked? God doesn't do that. He says, If there's 50 righteous in the city, would you spare that city? And the angel of the Lord says, if there's 50 righteous in the city, I'll spare that city. Abram says, okay, now that I've gotten the courage to speak to the Lord, let me, let me up the ante a little bit. How about 45, Lord? God says, if there's 45 righteous, I will spare the city. And by the time that they finish their interaction, Abram talks God all the way down to how many? Ten. Ten. If there are but ten, just ten righteous in the city... And God says, yes, if only ten righteous people exist in the entire city, then I will spare that city. And then they go their way. The two angels enter the city. And they're going to sleep in the street, which was very common in that time. It was not uncommon for them to sleep in the street. And Lot sees them. Lot is now living in the city of Sodom. And he says, look, gentlemen, you cannot sleep on the street tonight. And they say, no, 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 it's fine. It won't be a problem. He says, no, 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 no. You cannot sleep on the street tonight. You need to come inside. So he invites them in. They consent to enter his house. And that's where we pick up the account. They're eating together. And we pick up the account in Genesis 19, beginning in verse 4. But before they lay down, the men of the city, even the men of Sodom, compassed the house round, both old and young, all the people from every quarter. And they called unto Lot and said unto him, Where are the men which came into thee this night? Bring them out unto us that we may know them. And Lot went out at the door unto them and shut the door after him and said, I pray you, brethren, do not so wickedly. Behold, now I have two daughters which have not known man. Let me, I pray you, bring them out unto you and do ye to them as is good in your eyes. Only unto these men do nothing for therefore came they under the shadow of my roof. And they said, stand back 
Then they said again, This one fellow came into sojourn, and he will needs be a judge. Now we will deal worse with thee than with them. And they pressed sore upon the man, even Lot, and came near to break the door. But the men put forth their hands and pulled Lot into the house to them and shut the door. And they smote the men that were at the door of the house with blindness, both small and great, so that they wearied themselves to find the door. So great was the wickedness and apostasy of the city. So few were the righteous in the city that they were violent in their desire to commit immorality. They were violent in their demand to do so. And so great was that wickedness that that very night God rained fire and brimstone down upon that city of the plains. Now as we consider Sodom and Gomorrah, but particularly Sodom, we receive more insight in a couple of different passages of Scripture. In Ezekiel 16 verse 49, the Bible says this, Behold, this was the iniquity of thy sister Sodom, pride, fullness of bread, and abundance of idleness was in her and in her daughters. Neither did she strengthen the hand of the poor and needy. Boy, I could preach a whole sermon on that. And we could tie this so closely to the America of today, could we not? Pride, fullness of bread, and abundance of idleness. This is what brought them into deep immorality. I was thinking the other day as I was mowing the lawn about how closely tied the idleness of our society is with the immorality of our society. People have way too much time on their hands. And that's why they're getting themselves into so much trouble. Because they have way too much time on their hands. So pride, fullness of bread, abundance. They were a wealthy city. They had too much time on their hands. They lifted themselves up and exalted themselves above God in their negligence and their idleness. They rejected the poor. They rejected the innocent. They rejected the needy. They took care of themselves. They focused on themselves. And this led to deeper evidences of depravity. Now, if you just took this verse alone, you'd say, okay, well, Sodom was destroyed with fire and brimstone for pride. But this pride led to the great... Now, pride is a great problem. Uh, but, but this led to the great immorality. And we read about that in Jude, verse 7. Even as Sodom and Gomorrah, the cities about them in like manner giving themselves over to fornication and going after strange flesh. That's homosexuality, by the way. Are set forth for an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. And so Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed for this sin of sodomy, for the sin of homosexuality. This was the pinnacle of their sin. Now, it wasn't the only sin. They were proud. They were idle. They were wicked in, in plenty of other ways. But this was the pinnacle of their sin that led to an evidence of absolute depravity. Whereby God said, it is time to rain fire and brimstone down. These, this is an irrecoverable group of people. There aren't even ten righteous people left in this city that are not fully taken by this sinful life. And Jude tells us that they are set forth as an example of perdition. They are the prototype. They are the archetype of judgment. You want to talk about judgment? When you think about judgment in the Bible, Sodom is one of the places you go. That the wickedness of these people, that the degree to which they had, 
had yielded the knowledge of God, brought upon them fire and brimstone. Seeing then the depths of Sodom's evil and the severity of their judgment, consider with me again, verse 12. But I say unto you, that it shall be more tolerable in that day, that's the day of judgment, for Sodom than for that city. What city? Any city that would reject the gospel as given by the 70 who were commissioned. Wow. Hmm? That's impactful, isn't it? Jesus is saying that the sin of rejection of the gospel is of greater magnitude in the days of Christ than what Sodom and Gomorrah did in the days of Abraham. And so Jesus continues in verses 13 and 14. Woe unto thee, Chorazin! Woe unto thee, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works had been done in Tyre and Sidon, which have been done in you, they had a great while ago repented sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it shall be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon at the judgment than for you. Chorazin and Bethsaida were cities in Israel. Bethsaida was a well-known city in Galilee. We've seen quite a few things there. It was outside of the city of Bethsaida that Jesus multiplied the loaves and the fishes in Luke 9, verse 10. At least three of Jesus' disciples were from Bethsaida. Philip, Andrew, and Peter. And so Bethsaida was well known. They grew up in that area. Chorazin, on the other hand, is not very well known. It's not mentioned anywhere else in Scripture other than in Jesus' woes, which is a pretty bad legacy to have. According to the historian Eusebius, Chorazin was two miles from Capernaum, which was, for lack of better description, Jesus' base of operation. And he'll talk about Capernaum in just a minute. So he's talking to Chorazin and he's talking to Bethsaida and he says, Woe unto you! And then just as he said, it will be more tolerable in the, in the day of judgment for Sodom than for the cities that reject them. As he's giving these woes, he says, it will be more tolerable in the days of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than it will be for them. Because if the great works that have been done in Chorazin and Bethsaida had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have long ago repented in sackcloth and ashes. Now the concept of a woe in scripture, woe is an exclamation of grief. It was one of the most heightened exclamations of grief that a person could use. And Jesus declares this woe upon Chorazin and Bethsaida. Now we have spoken already of Sodom, but what about Tyre and Sidon? What are these cities? And why is it that Jesus, after having just compared um, the cities that would reject the commission of the 72 to Sodom, why is he now comparing these cities that had rejected Jesus Christ's ministry to Tyre and Sidon? Well, like with Sodom and Gomorrah, Tyre and Sidon were Old Testament objects of God's wrath for their tremendous evil. It would take too long for us to trace the entire legacy of Tyre and Sidon. But in Ezekiel, we get a pretty good picture of the idea of the problems with Tyre and Sidon. They were described as incredibly beautiful cities, particularly the city of Tyre was an incredibly beautiful city called in Ezekiel Tyrus. 
And this elevated them to a place where they were exalting themselves above God. We read this in Ezekiel 27 verses 1 through 4. The word of the Lord came again to me saying, Now thou son of man, take up a lamentation for Tyrus, that would be Tyre, and say unto Tyrus, O thou that art situate at the entry of the sea, which art a merchant of the people for many isles. Thus saith the Lord God, O Tyrus, thou hast said, I am of perfect beauty. Thy borders are in the midst of the seas. Thy builders have perfected thy beauty. The text goes on in Ezekiel 27 to speak of just how much they thought themselves greatly beautiful. So much so that as we get into Ezekiel 28, we're going to see Satan himself called the king of Tyrus. God is going to compare the vanity of Tyre to the vanity by which Satan fell from heaven, which we'll talk about more next week. I'm so excited for that message. So here we are, and there's this beauty. And they say, we are beautiful. We are the gateway to the sea. Tyre was one of the most uh, the, the most capable natural ports, really, in the world. The area where Tyre used to sit. And there's a city on it today. It was a fantastic natural port. It was deep. It was excellent for shipping. Tyre was one of the gateways to the world. It was a shipping hub for the world. It was rich. It was powerful. It was influential. And it was beautiful. And this was the city. So beautiful, in fact, that they thought that they could exalt themselves above God. We read in Ezekiel 28, beginning in verse 1. The word of the Lord came again unto me, saying, Son of man, say unto the prince of Tyrus, Thus saith the Lord God, because thine heart is lifted up, and thou hast said, I am a God. So this is the leader of Tyrus. The leader of Tyrus, leading this very proud city, had exalted himself and said, I am a God. I sit in the seat of God, in the midst of the seas. And this is God talking, yet thou art a man and not God. Though thou set thine heart as the heart of God, behold, thou art wiser than Daniel. There is no secret that they can hide from thee. With thy wisdom and with thine understanding, thou hast gotten thee riches and hast gotten gold and silver into thy treasures. God says, look, make no mistake. You're wise. You're wiser than Daniel. That's quite a compliment. With your wisdom, what have you done with it though? What has Daniel done with his wisdom? He's brought about one of the most important chapters of scripture or books of scripture in the Bible. What did the prince of Tyrus do with his wisdom? He made money. So God says, yes, you're wise. And with that wisdom, you've gotten riches. But you know what? You're not God. You're just a man. You cannot exalt yourself above God. By thy great wisdom and by thy traffic, thou hast thou increased thy riches, and thine heart is lifted up because of thy riches. Therefore, thus saith the Lord God, because thou hast set thine heart as the heart of God, behold, therefore will I bring strangers upon thee, the terrible of the nations, and they shall draw their swords against the beauty of thy wisdom, and they shall defile thy brightness. They shall bring thee down to the pit, and thou shalt die the deaths of them that are slain in the midst of the sea. Wilt thou yet say before him that slayeth thee, I am God? But thou shalt be a man and no God, in the hand of him that slayeth thee. 
Thou shalt die the deaths of the uncircumcised by the hand of strangers, for I have spoken it, saith the Lord God. This is the judgment on Tyre. We, we could go on. We could talk about the fact that Ezekiel says the city would be completely demolished, would be razed to the ground, and would never be rebuilt again. It would never find its splendor again. It would never find the glory that it once had again. We could go through all of the passages of Scripture. But God says, here's the thing. I'm going to send people, and they're going to destroy you. And what are you going to tell them right before they kill you? You're going to say, you can't kill me, I'm a god, right before they kill you. It says, you, you, you better understand here that I am going to tear you down. This city that exalted itself against God. This is the template, as I mentioned, of Lucifer. God would compare this. He calls the the leader of Tyre the prince. And then he calls Satan the king of Tyre. The pinnacle of this pride, whereby a person exalts themselves against God. Satan started it. He's the pinnacle of it. This prince and, and this city, they were just living out the template of Satan. And so with that in mind, understanding now what Tyre was about and sighed into, they were, they're oftentimes lotted together in Scripture. Verses 13 and 14. Woe unto thee, Chorazin. Woe unto thee, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works had been done in Tyre and Sidon, these great cities of pride, they had exalted themselves so much that the leader of the city was literally saying, I am God. I will exalt myself above God. I am greater than God. And Jesus says, if the works that had been done in Chorazin and Bethsaida had been done in Tyre and Sidon, the whole city would have repented in sackcloth and ashes. And so he says, since you've rejected me, when even Tyre and Sidon would not have, it'll be more tolerable in the day of judgment for Tyre and for Sidon than for you. It's interesting, is it not? Jesus went to the moral. You think of Sodom. Think of Tyre. Think of Sidon. What do you think of? Great pride. Exalting against God. Sexual immorality. This is the legacy of these people. But do you know what? Jesus says, I went unto the most moral people in the world. To the Galileans and to the Judeans. To the people who had all of their T's crossed. All of their I's dotted. To the people who had this law that they held on to. Whereby they don't do a bunch of stuff. And they do do a bunch of other stuff. And they follow the law of their God. And I did wonders among them. That if I had been, that if I had done in these wicked cities, they would have repented. And yet these moral people who looked so great on the outside were more dead spiritually on the inside than the Sodomites. More dead spiritually on the inside than those of Tyre and Sidon. Imagine that. Imagine the religious deadness of the people of these cities. They show that no matter what their exterior looked like, their hearts were more hardened against God than those who God had utterly destroyed with fire and brimstone. Than who God had had raised to the ground for their rebellion. Jesus mentions one more city. I told you we'd, we'd get to it. He mentions Capernaum as well. Verse 15. And thou, Capernaum, which are exalted to heaven, shalt be thrust down to hell. Like Sodom and Tyre before her, 
Capernaum had exalted itself in pride, thinking it knew better than God, thinking that this message from the one who is the divine second person of the Trinity was expendable, was optional. And indeed, this is the legacy of all who reject the free gift of salvation by grace through faith. They have chosen that they know better than God does. They have exalted themselves above the heavens. And just like Tyre in the days of Ezekiel, and like Sodom in the days of Abram, and like Lucifer at the dawn of creation, all who exalt themselves against the truth of God will be cast down into fiery judgment. And so Jesus concludes his commission, and we conclude our exposition in verse 16. Jesus says this, He that heareth you, heareth me. And he that despiseth you, despiseth me. And he that despiseth me, that despiseth him that sent me. Jesus makes it clear that the purpose of the commission of the 70 is not for them to convince, but rather to tell. They were going to go with signs and wonders. They were going to go casting out demons, healing the sick. They were going to have the signs there to convince. But their purpose was to tell, was to show the power of the kingdom. He reminds them that the man who hears them is not actually listening to them, but is listening to God. He reminds them that the man who rejects them is not actually rejecting them, but rejecting Christ. He reminds them that those who reject them, and therefore are rejecting Christ, are actually rejecting the Father who sent the Son, who then sent them. And this is important. We'll come back to this in a few minutes. So let's continue in our application. I'm giving you a third point. Again, I'm sorry I don't have that third point from this morning. I added it a little late in the game. And so it didn't show up on part two uh, because I didn't transfer it over. But you have the points from this morning. But point three on this, it would be point four if you're following from this morning. Know that with increased opportunity and knowledge comes increased accountability. With increased opportunity and increased knowledge comes increased accountability. This point is a transcendent principle worked out on the pages of Luke 10 to unbelievers, but just as true in the lives of believers. It's just as true in the lives of believers. Jesus will say in Luke 12, and we'll get there in a while, but Jesus will say in Luke 12, verse 48, the second half, for unto whomsoever much is given of him shall much be required, shall be much required. And to whom men have committed much of him, they will ask the more to the man that's committed much is asked much. In the realm of the unbeliever, this is what we understand, that there are some who have heard more of the gospel and some who have heard less of the gospel. There are some who have rejected just the testimony of God in creation or in conscience. And there are others who have actually heard the gospel. It has gotten into their ears and they have downright rejected the conviction of the Holy Spirit through the evidences of the gospel. The cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, the cities of Tyre and Sidon had received some degree of revelation. We know in the days of Sodom and Gomorrah that Melchizedek, the king of Salem, was there as a prophet of the Most High God. 
and as a, excuse me, as a priest of the Most High God. We know that there were people testifying of God. We know that Abram was there. And so we understand that there was some light. We understand that they knew something of God. They knew that what they were doing was wrong. They knew that what they were doing offended a holy God. They had exalted themselves against the one who is called holy, faithful, and true. But Chorazan, Bethsaida, and Capernaum, they had seen wonders far beyond Sodom and Gomorrah. As far as the scriptural record is concerned, Sodom and Gomorrah never had the second person of the Trinity appear and raise someone from the dead in their town. Sodom and Gomorrah had never had the blind see and the lame walk. Tyre and Sidon had never seen those incredible miracles. Tyre and Sidon had never, at least as far as the scriptures tell us, had never had someone come into their city and take five loaves and two fishes and feed 5,000 people. They hadn't seen these things. But Bethsaida, Chorazin, and Capernaum had. They had seen wonders far beyond Sodom and Gomorrah. Wonders far beyond Tyre and Sidon. Yet they still rejected the word of the Lord. And the accountability upon the shoulders of those cities in Galilee when Jesus was slain was far higher than the accountability even upon those cities who were divinely destroyed for their rejection of God's design. Now the question comes up. What does it mean? How can judgment be more tolerable for some than for others when the Bible says all who, will re- all who reject Christ will suffer eternal separation from God in a place of conscious torment called the lake of fire? How can one person's eternal judgment in fire be worse than another person's eternal judgment in fire if both are eternal judgment in fire? Pretty valid question. And all I can tell you is that the Bible gives us little insight into this, but this is what we do know. Unbelievers will be resurrected and judged following the millennial reign of Jesus Christ on the earth. We talked about this in Sunday school. At this time, John writes this in Revelation chapter 20, beginning in verse 11. And I saw a great white throne and him that sat on it from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God and the books were opened and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works. Now, the scriptures tell us that these unbelievers will first be judged according to their works. That's the same with believers. Believers will also first be judged according to their works. The Bible tells us this much to be true. And the Bible tells us in the, in the, uh, the, um, believing realm that as we stand before God and we're judged for our works that we will suffer reward and loss, right? That there's a there will be a pile of wood, hay, and stubble, and gold, silver, and precious stones. In First Corinthians, tells us this, and that the fire of God's judgment will fall upon that, and the wood, hay, and stubble will burn up, and the gold, silver, and precious stones will remain, and that will be a part of that earth, that heavenly inheritance. That will be those heavenly rewards, those heavenly riches, and then we'll receive our crowns, and we'll receive our cities and the millennium, and all of these things that the Bible says we will be given. And to whom much is given, much is required. But to those that are faithful to that which they've been given, they will receive great reward. How this plays out in the lives of unbelievers is uncertain. So we're judged by our works as believers, and then we enter into eternity because our names are written in the Lamb's book of life, which is different from the works, right? 
and we enter in with our rewards from the judgment of our works. How does that play out with the unbeliever? Don't really know. The Bible does not tell us that on the day of judgment, they will first be judged for their works. And then their names will not be found written in the book of life and they will be cast in the lake of fire. But there is no doubt that it is this judgment whereby the unbeliever is judged for his works. That will be the point where it will be worse for those who had greater knowledge and opportunity and yet rejected the truth of the gospel than for those that did not. This is where the person who rejected the clear gospel for years will receive greater judgment than he who had little revelation and yet still was not written in the Lamb's book of life. But know this as well. The text goes on, verses 13 to 15 of Revelation 20. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them, and they were judged every man according to their works, and death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Everyone who stands before Christ on the day of the great white throne of judgment is already condemned because they have rejected the gospel. Their name is not written in the book of life and they're cast in the lake of fire. There's really very little more insight that we get into how it can be more tolerable on the day of judgment for some than for others. We just have to trust that this is what it will be. And we need to understand the principle more so that to those that have greater opportunity and knowledge, they have greater accountability on the day of judgment, whether unbeliever or believer. And this reminds us of the prominent truth that every man is responsible for his choice unto eternity. Will a man lay his eternity at the feet of the finished work of Jesus? And so by throwing himself upon the mercy of God, find undeserved salvation? Or will a man reject that gift and so forsake his own mercy and find a wholly deserved judgment? But believers, before I leave this point, I want to stress with you this evening that the same standard does apply to you and I. Just as one day we will be found written in the Lamb's book of life and so receive eternal life, so too one day prior to that judgment, prior to that that declaration of innocence whereby we'll enter into our heavenly home, there will be a day of judgment for our works. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5 verse 10, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive the things done in his body according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. We could visit several more passages. We're not going to for sake of time today. But we could go to several more passages that tell you that you, as a believer, will be judged for your works. Not unto eternal life or death, but unto reward and loss. You will be judged according to your works, Christian. Those things that are done every day, those things that are done in secret, those things that are done in the dark, those things that are done that no one knows about, those things that you got away with, those things that you did right that nobody saw. That that faithfulness to the church that's behind the scenes. Nobody ever gave you a gift certificate to wherever for for your efforts. Nobody ever recognized you. Nobody ever thanked you. Nobody ever gave you a trophy. 
No one ever put a plaque up in the church in your honor. Nobody ever did any of those things for you. Nobody ever gave you a pat on the back for all of those times that you shared the gospel. Nobody ever did those things, but it's all recorded in books. And one day those books will be opened and you will be judged out of them, whether good or bad. We'll learn about this in Ecclesiastes. Solomon's going to talk about this. So Paul tells us, 1 Corinthians 4 verse 2, Moreover, it is required in stewards that a man be found faithful. To whatever degree you have been given knowledge, you are now accountable. Congratulations. You are now accountable for that knowledge. To whatever degree the word of God has been taught to you. So that you know what it says and you know what God expects. Congratulations. That's the degree to which you've been held accountable. You were looking for that church church that taught you good stuff, right? And now you find out that that church that teaches you good stuff is just making you more accountable on the day of judgment, right? To whom much is given, much is required. And for this reason, James warns teachers. He says in James 3 verse 1, My brethren, be not many masters knowing that we shall receive the greater condemnation. Notice he says we there. He's one of those masters. That word masters there in the Greek is teachers. Just before James warns about the power of the tongue, which is what James 3 is talking about, he first states that you should not aspire unto the role of a spiritual teacher, but to whom the role of spiritual teacher is given, to that man is a much greater accountability for the words that come out of his mouth. Because I am a spiritual teacher, I will receive the greater condemnation. I am held far more, on the day of judgment, I will be held far more accountable than you will. Fathers, on the day of judgment, you'll be held far more accountable than mothers. I should say husbands, wives. Husbands, on the day of judgment, you'll be held far more accountable than wife. With more responsibility, with more privilege comes more accountability. And so we're warned that with increased opportunity, with increased knowledge, comes increased accountability. And if you have eyes of faith to see, you will understand just how important it is that you be found faithful to that which God has given you of knowledge and of opportunity, regardless of what degree, of to what degree that is. You won't be held accountable for that which you, you were not given to know. But to the degree that you know, you will be held accountable. So, know that with increased opportunity and knowledge comes increased accountability. Next, know that a rejection of your message is not a rejection of you. It is a rejection of Christ. We spoke this morning of the cost of labor. We went to 1 John chapter 3, verse 13. Marvel not, my brethren, if the world hates you. We went to Jesus' words in John 15 that tell us that if they hate us, it's because they first hated the one who sent us, that being Christ. And let's allow all of these truths. We said we'd come back to them this morning. This is us coming back to them. Let's allow these truths to give us perspective. <coughs> yes, it does mean that rejection is a part of the process of telling. Don't expect to go out in the world and to share the gospel without people rejecting you. Don't expect to go door knocking without doors being slammed in your face. Don't expect to hand out tracts without somebody throwing them on the ground or tossing them in the trash or throwing it back in your face. 
Don't expect you to try to hand something, uh, some gospel literature out on a college campus without people coming up to you and getting very angry at you. Don't expect these, don't expect it to be an easy road. If you're going to be what Christ desires you to be, you are going to face resistance. But if you can, by faith, remember that what they are doing is not rejecting you, but your message. Which, by the way, if you're doing right, is not your message, but Christ's message. Which, by the way, was not his message, but the Father's message. Then you begin to understand that it's not about you. They hate the messenger because who doesn't? Right? I mean, honestly, who doesn't hate the messenger? Everybody hates the messenger. This is where the phrase comes from, don't kill the messenger. Humanity has a tendency to take out its anger on the message against the one who's delivering that message, right? This is human nature. When your parent asks you to tell your brother and sister that it's time for dinner, or it's time to take a bath, or it's time to go clean your room, you get angry at the sibling who told you if you don't like the message, just as much as you get angry at the parents for giving the message. As a matter of fact, you might even get more angry at the sibling who told you than at the message that came from the parents, right? You're angry at the messenger for the message that the parents asked the messenger to deliver to you. You don't get angry at the source. You get angry at the delivery boy or girl. The brother or sister might just get angry at you instead of getting angry at the message itself. When a police officer shows up to serve a warrant at the home of a criminal, he's just a messenger for the courts, right? But when I was in my studies and when I went through my, my training, serving warrants is one of the most dangerous jobs a police officer can do. And all he's there to do is be a messenger for the courts. But criminals have this tendency to take out, to think that, oh, if the messenger gets hurt, then I don't have to care about the message anymore. Doesn't quite work that way, does it? And so it is with Christ. People believe that if they can silence you, if they can hurt you, if they can make you feel shame, if they can cause you great harm, then somehow the message will go away or somehow they won't be held accountable. But brethren, don't ever allow anyone to shame you from the truth. Do not ever allow anyone to make you feel ashamed for your knowledge of the truth and your desire to tell them of it. That's what the world does, is it not? I mean, isn't what, this what the world is doing every day? They are silencing Christians in, in shame for what we believe. You believe that the Bible is true, you are a bigot, racist, xenophobe, homophobe, transphobe, fill in the blank phobe, right? Why? What are they doing? They're trying to shame you into silence. Don't ever be ashamed. Paul said, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believes. Don't be ashamed of the gospel. As you stand before the lost world and you proclaim the gospel, you are little more than the messenger sent in love to call them out of eternal damnation and into eternal life. And when they reject you and they hate you and they scorn you, know this first. They did the same thing to Christ. Jesus' ministry of gaining disciples was by man's standard pretty minimal. Know this second. 
there's a reward for obedience. That the duty, that your duty is not to convince people. Your duty is to tell people the Holy Spirit does the convincing. You're the messenger. Know this third. They actually have not rejected you. They have rejected Christ in you. And may I just briefly highlight the opposite as well. When somebody comes to a saving knowledge of Christ through your efforts, know just as well that they did not receive you, that it was not your words and your charisma and your glamour. Maybe you have all that. But that wasn't what won them. It never is. And if that is what won them, they are not saved. What wins a person to Christ is the message of Christ and the Holy Spirit's conviction in them. God does the work, not you. Those who hear you, hear you because they are willing to hear Jesus. Is that not what we read here? He that heareth you, heareth me. If they've heard you, it's because they're listening to me. Jesus is telling the 70 to go. And he's saying, know this as you go. You're going out as lambs in the midst of wolves. He's not telling them that so that they won't go. He's telling them that just to warn them about what to expect. They're going. And they're to pray for more laborers. We are left with a commission to go. Even in the midst of wolves. We are left with a warning that with increased opportunity brings increased accountability. We are left with a comfort that it is not ours to convince people. It is ours to tell people. You have not failed. If you've told your family, if you've told your friends, if you've told your neighbors and they've said no, you have not failed. You've not. It has nothing to do with you. You've done your part. You have, t- you have shared the gospel. If you've shared the gospel. Now, if you say, well, I've been a good, I, I've, I've prayed before my meal in front of them and they've rejected the gospel. Well, no, you haven't actually given them the gospel. All you've done is acknowledge the Lord before a meal. That's not giving the gospel, right? But if you've given them the gospel, if you've done your part and they've rejected it, it's not because you failed. It's because they've rejected. It's not on your shoulders. And now I leave you with the question. How are you doing? Are you faithfully discharging your duties to tell? To whatever degree you have opportunity, have you taken advantage of that because you're held accountable? Have you allowed the fear of rejection, the fear of man, some sense of shame to silence your testimony and dim your gospel light? And believe me, I get it. I get it. I struggle with it too. It's a fearful thing. The fear of man is a powerful thing, is it not? The desire to not be shamed, the desire to, especially in this culture where for the last several Well, for for as long as our culture is known until the last 50 years or so, culture and the church have not been really in conflict. And so now here it is, and we have a burden to bear that our forefathers did not have to bear. We have a burden of sharing the gospel in a society that, that does not want to hear it in a way that our forefathers did not have to. So we're having to relearn this whole thing of boldness. Of true boldness in a way that our forefathers in America didn't really have to deal with for some time. Obviously, there have been martyrs in the centuries gone past. That's not quite what I'm saying there. 
Perhaps the Spirit of God has highlighted something in your heart about opportunity and knowledge and accountability. Perhaps it is that you've not been faithful to the opportunity or knowledge that you've been given. And tonight you've remembered that to whom much is given, much is required. Whatever it might be that the Lord has been doing in your heart tonight, whatever it might be that the Spirit of God is saying, you need this, this is for you, this is what you need to learn. That's the Spirit of God, it's called conviction, right? And as the Spirit of God has convicted your heart, if He said, this is something for you, would you just, would you obey that? Would you submit yourself to it? Would you dedicate your, your, your heart this week to saying, I'm gonna pray through that? I'm gonna pray about that? The Lord laid something on my heart Sunday night, and instead of just leaving the, these doors and forgetting about it, I'm gonna pray about it. Every day, I'm gonna, I'm gonna write down, every day I'm gonna pray, God, what do you want for me here? God, what does this mean for me? God, what would you have me to do? And then when he tells you, would you do it? Would you allow the Spirit of God to take the Word of God and apply it to your heart this evening? Let's close in prayer.